Amen. Good morning, everybody. Do you have your Bible with you this morning? Good. If you have it, you need to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one from the pew rack right there in front of you so you can follow along as we study God's Word together. Last week in Hebrews chapter 11, we talked about the patriarchs and how their faith was demonstrated in their dying days as they looked death in the face having not received the fulfillment of the promises God had made to them, they were able to look ahead to the next generation and speak a blessing to their children and their grandchildren. They knew that God's plan was much bigger than they were. They knew that in their deaths, the plan was not coming to an end. As Tom Schreiner put it, faith trusts God for the future. And believes, no matter how improbable it seems, that God will fulfill what he has promised. And we have to have faith like that as well. Faith that looks, that trusts God for the future and believes that no matter how improbable it seems, God will fulfill what he has promised. And that not even death will frustrate God's purpose and his promise. I was talking to one lady after the service last week and she said as we were talking about these things, she couldn't help but think about her kids and her grandkids and how important it is to pass these promises and these blessings on to them. And that is a good application. We want to be passing the word of God. We want to be passing the testimony of his faithfulness. And we want to be passing a blessing on to our children and our grandchildren. Not even just those that belong to us, but those that are in our community and in our neighborhood. I think that's a great application um, that one member made last week. This week, we're going to shift gears a little bit, move ahead in the biblical timeline to the days of Moses. Last week, I told you several stories from God's word. And I'll tell you a few more uh, this week as well. But I think we should note that the author of Hebrews didn't have to tell those stories to his people. He, he was writing to a group of people that were intimately familiar with the stories of the Old Testament. Well, he could make uh, allusions. He could make references to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And he didn't have to go to the links of telling them all the details about those stories because those people already knew all of the details. And it's not the case with us most of the time. Most of us, most of the time, are not intimately familiar with all of these Old Testament stories. And so we need to, and I'm glad to, go back and tell those stories again and again and again. But I, I think it highlights the importance of sermon series like we did a while back on Old Testament overview so that we get a picture uh, of what, uh, how the biblical narrative arcs throughout history. Um, but I think it is even more important that we are engaging the Word of God, all of the Word of God, on a regular basis in our daily lives, privately, that we are reading the scriptures from cover to cover in our own lives so that when we come to a book like Hebrews and we see a writer making references to things in the Old Testament, we're not lost. We know exactly what he's talking about. We know about Moses' parents hiding him for three months. We know about Moses' parents putting him in the river. We know about Pharaoh's daughter taking him out of the river. We know that story because we've read the Bible. Um, and, and so if you don't know that story today, I'll tell you that story today. Um, but it is better for you to be familiar with it because you're reading your Bible on a regular basis. So uh, let's check it out today. In Hebrews chapter 11, we'll study verses 23 to 29. This morning, this is what God's word says. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling and, and the sprinkling of blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Let's pray together. Father, we are, we are thankful today for this gathering. To be together with each other is good. Um, to be with our brothers and sisters sharing our lives together is good. It's better to be in your presence. We're thankful that you are our Father, that Christ is our Savior who brings us together. We're thankful for your word that you've given us. We're thankful for the testimony of those saints of old who live by faith. Thankful particularly today for Moses, for the faith of his parents and for his faith as he looked to the promise, looked to the reward and saw what is unseen by faith and moved, acted and obeyed by faith. God, we want to grow in our faith. We want to follow you. We want to obey you. We want to live our lives for you. So we pray today as we study your word, you'll strengthen our faith, you'll equip us for life, and that you will be honored and glorified by everything that happens. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so there, there are actually a few different scenes that the author of Hebrews is referring to in the text today from the life of Moses. So look at it. The first scene is in verse 23 and really doesn't have to do with the faith of Moses as much as it has to do with the faith of Moses' parents. Look at verse 23. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because, he, because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. This is a reference to a story that is found in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Susan Houghton, uh, a couple weeks ago at jail ministry on Mother's Day, told this story and told it extremely well. In fact, Susan, come on up here and you tell it again this morning. No? I'm just kidding. I didn't give her any warning about that. We, we hadn't worked that out ahead of time. Um, but, but I'm thankful for that day. That was an interesting day of jail ministry. Uh, Miss Susan and a couple of other ladies uh, often travel with us to jail ministry specifically to talk to the women who are there. They don't stick around for the men's groups. They leave once the men come in. Uh, but they are there specifically to minister to these women. And it is a good, good thing. And Susan did a great job on a difficult day, Mother's Day, talking to women, most of whom were mothers, on Mother's Day in jail. And she did a great job telling this story. And, and, I, and I want to take this opportunity to give a plug for jail ministry. Um, this really doesn't have a lot to do with the text today, other than this coincidence that Susan just told this story a couple weeks ago. But I went to a town hall meeting earlier this week that our mayor, the mayor of Harrisburg, called in light of recent crime and violence that had taken place. And uh, one of the many things I walked away from that town hall meeting with was a renewed dedication to jail ministry here in Saline County. 
Because the reality is that every person, nearly every person we engage across the street here in jail ministry is at some point coming back into Harrisburg. Those people are not going to stay in jail forever and ever, and most of them are going to come right back into the Harrisburg community. And so we need to be investing in taking the gospel to the jail, right? And, and bringing the good news of Jesus to the jail and bringing some uh, love and compassion and support from the church to the jail so that when folks come out, they have some friends and they have some hope and they have a place that they can come and be uh, welcomed. And First Baptist Church needs to be one of those places. And so I want to commit to you, as long as I'm the pastor here, we will be involved in jail ministry. We will be involved in Saline County Jail Ministry because I think it is highly important. And so, Susan, thank you uh, for telling the story that you told so well from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, about Moses' mom. About Moses' mom who had this little baby at a really difficult time. Uh, a time when the king of Egypt, we call him Pharaoh, um, was opposed to the people of God. And he was afraid, really, of the people of God. And, and he had given an order that all the male children should be killed. And you can read about this in chapter 1 of Exodus. But there were a couple of midwives who, who refused to kill the male children. And they were sparing them. They were going against the king's order and they were sparing him. And, and, and this made the Pharaoh even more upset. And so he issued another decree that all the male children should be thrown into the Nile River. If you had a baby and it was a boy and you were a Hebrew slave, you were immediately to throw that child into the water, drown him, feed him to the alligators because Pharaoh was so afraid about the population of Israel growing in his country. Well, the story goes that there were two Israelite slaves who had a baby and they saw that he was beautiful. And we'll talk about that in a minute, what that means. Um, but they hid him for three months. For three months, Moses' parents hid him away until they could hide him no longer because at three months old, you start getting louder and louder, right? It's hard to hide a baby for three months, let alone for years and years, right? So they couldn't hide him anymore, but, but Moses' parents were unwilling to bend to the will of the king. They were unwilling to just throw this baby boy of theirs into the Nile River. And so if you remember the story, Moses' mom makes a little basket and she lines it with pitch. And Susan said, when she was telling the story, she said, and I'm sure she put some blankets in there too. Like, that is spoken like a true mom. Only a mom would tell that part of the story. I'm sure she put some blankets in there. And she put little Moses in the basket and put him out in the river. And uh, Moses' sister kind of stayed off in the bushes, in the reeds along the side of the river, watching what would happen. And as that baby floated down the river, he came across Pharaoh's daughter, who was bathing in the river. And Pharaoh's daughter heard the baby and went and took the baby and saw that he was beautiful. And she decided that she would raise that baby as her own, that she would take that baby into her own house and raise him as as her own well Moses sister at that point kind of jumps out of the bushes and says hey do you, do you need a Hebrew slave to nurse that baby until he's weaned uh, and and Pharaoh's daughter is like sure I, I guess I do and so she immediately runs and gets her mom who is also Moses mom and says here's a lady who can nurse this baby and so Pharaoh's daughter gives Moses back to his mother to be nursed until he's weaned uh, this is incredible right one scholar I was reading said Moses mom gets paid to nurse Moses until he's weaned. She's like a slave of Pharaoh until he's weaned. And so uh, she takes him back to their home, nurses him, raises him, but then she gives him 
She gives him back to Pharaoh's daughter, and Moses at that point is raised as a child of Pharaoh's daughter in, in the court of, of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. That's a pretty incredible story from God's word. And that is the story that the author of Hebrews is referring to in verse 23 when he says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. I think it is especially interesting that the author of Hebrews points out that his parents hid him because he was beautiful. What, what do you think that means, he was beautiful? Have you ever met a parent that didn't think their child was beautiful? Their child in particular? There's a great episode of Seinfeld, by the way, where, where Jerry and Elaine have a friend who has a baby who is evidently pretty ugly. Everyone thinks the baby is ugly except the parents, right? They think this is the most beautiful baby in the world, and everyone else is like, oh, yeah, you kind of have to play along with parents. But every parent thinks their child is beautiful. So why does, why does Moses stand out? Why do they hide this baby because he was beautiful? Well, most scholars think that, that they were able to spiritually discern some kind of um, potential, some kind of specialness in uh, Moses. Maybe he had a, a lightning bolt shaped scar on his forehead. I don't know exactly. They were able to see that there was something special about this child. And so they spared this child. Uh, and, and maybe the most important part of this first scene is that they did this in contradiction to the king's edict. They were not afraid of the king. They were not interested in obeying the king over obeying the Lord. They were not afraid. And this has a pastoral motivation. This has a pastoral application for the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to originally. Because remember, they are a people who are facing an escalating persecution. They are a people who are facing an escalating opposition from the authorities in their lives. And so it is good for, their, for them to hear examples from the Old Testament of people who chose to obey the Lord rather than the king. And Moses' parents are a great example of someone who obeyed the Lord in spite of the king's edict. They were not afraid of the king. And that's a good thing. There's maybe another interesting application from this first scene. Warren Wiersbe points out this in his commentary. He says, uh, though godly parents cannot pass on their faith as they do family traits, they can certainly create an atmosphere of faith at home and be examples to their children. A home should be the first school of faith for a child. And I think Moses' parents are setting the stage for that. They can't give Moses faith. They can't pass on their faith to Moses. But they can do everything in their power to create an environment where he hears and knows what obedience looks like. And as parents, we should be doing everything we can to expose our children to the gospel in words and deeds. We must be making every effort to expose our children to the gospel in words and deeds. Now, this does not mean that our children will necessarily believe, but it is clearly our responsibility to expose them as much as possible to the things of the Lord. In fact, next weekend, we're going to participate in parent-child dedication here at First Baptist Church, where parents are saying, we're going to do this. We are going to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We are going to make every effort to raise them so that they know about the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And as a church... As a church, we're going to say, we're going to help you do that. 
We are going to be invested in these children so that they are raised in an environment where they are exposed to the gospel, both in words and deeds. It's an important day. It's an important day. Does that mean that these children will go to heaven? Does that mean that these children will someday believe? No, not necessarily. But we are going to do what we are responsible to do and expose them, preach the message of the gospel to them as much as we can, right? So be here next week and participate in that. So verse 23 really tells the story about Moses' parents defying the king in obedience to the Lord, saving this baby, and then the story picks up a little more. Look at verse 24. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now this scene shifts to a period of Moses' life when he begins to identify with the Hebrews. When he begins to identify with the people of God, the people of his birth, who are being oppressed and abused as slaves in Egypt. Now you remember last week where we left off with Joseph was we just got into Egypt, right? God raises up Joseph in Egypt, spares all of his family from Canaan. They come to Egypt to get grain. Well, generations go by and they, they, they stop being welcome guests in Egypt and start being oppressed slaves in Egypt. And that's exactly what Moses sees. And he begins to recognize, I'm not one of these Egyptians. Yeah, I've been raised in Pharaoh's household by his daughter, but I'm not one of these Egyptians. I'm a Hebrew. I look like them. My roots are there. And so what, what I want you to see in verses 24, 25, and 26 is that there is a negative and a positive side of Moses' identification here. Moses' identity has a negative and a positive side. The negative side is when he says, I am not Egyptian. He says, I am not Pharaoh's daughter. I am not one of you. I am not of this world. And that's an important step that we must take as well. If we are going to identify with the people of God, we have to also say, I'm, I'm not one of them. I'm, I'm not one of the world. I'm not a part of this world. I'm a part of something different. In fact, the New Testament oftentimes used this language of take off the old, put it away. Read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 19. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Right? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things are gone. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Really, I, I left those last couple of verses in there just because they're so good. They don't really make this, the point that we're trying to make here from Hebrews chapter 11. But in Hebrews chapter 11, we want to see that there is a new identity, and the old is gone. And Moses embraces that. Moses says, I'm not a daughter of Pharaoh. I mean, I'm not a son of... He was never a daughter of Pharaoh, right? I'm not a son of Pharaoh's daughter, I'm not a Hebrew, I'm not a Egyptian. I'm not one of those. I'm something altogether different. And there's a positive side of it as well. As you read it in 24, 25, and 26. He says, I am a Hebrew. I am one of God's people. I am an Israelite. 
This is who I am. And we see that in 2 Corinthians as well. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone. Behold, new things have come. So in the New Testament, we see this language of put off the old, put it away. But we also see this language of put on the new, put on the new life. And Moses is doing both of those things here in this text. He is saying, I am not a Hebrew. I mean, I am not an Egyptian. I am a Hebrew. I am not uh, a royal son of the daughter of Pharaoh. I am a slave, part of the people of God. Moses is recognizing both of those things. Notice also the author of Hebrews' emphasis on the exchange. As an Egyptian, he would have enjoyed all kinds of wealth and privilege. Just as an average, ordinary Egyptian, he was in a much better place than the Hebrew slaves. But Moses was not raised as a normal Egyptian. He was raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised as a prince in Egypt. He would have had access to any kind of food, any kind of pleasure. His life was easy. His life was comfortable. His life was posh. He was living the American dream, so to speak. He had it all. He had it made. When, by faith, he identified with the people of God rather than the people of Egypt, he took on ill treatment along with them. So he forsook all that Egypt had to offer and embraced the pain that came with following God and identifying with his people. And what I want you to hear today is that's still the exchange that we make. When we identify with God's people, when we follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, we are giving up what pleasures the world can offer. And we are embracing a certain amount of pain that comes with following God and trusting in Christ. Paul knew about this exchange He talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to turn there because it was too much to put on the board. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to see Paul talk about this this same kind of exchange that he experienced. It's a long passage, so really turn there like I mean it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole thing to you. Listen for this exchange, a similar kind of exchange that Moses made. Paul says, therefore, since we have this testimony, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ." But we have this treasure in earthly vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, 
so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, listen carefully to this, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You catch that? Paul recognizes that when he follows Jesus, he is embracing a certain amount of suffering. He's embracing a certain amount of pain, but he is looking not at that light momentary affliction, but at the glory that is being produced through that affliction. So Paul recognizes this same kind of transition. Notice also the way the author of Hebrews talks about the pleasures of sin. He says they're fleeting, fleeting pleasures of sin. He says that Moses chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't lie to us. He doesn't say that there is no pleasure in sin. He doesn't say that there's no joy, happiness to be found in sin. He says that the pleasure that can be found in sin is fleeting. It is real, and that's why it's a struggle to walk in holiness because of the pleasures of sin, but they are fleeting pleasures. They are pleasures that don't last. F favorite line I read all week in studying for this text was from R. Kent Hughes when he says this, the pleasures of sin are like a Chinese dinner. No matter how much you eat, you're hungry again in a couple of hours. <laughs> Have you found that to be true in your own life? That sin does provide you with a certain amount of pleasure, but that pleasure is short-lived. And in time, you require more sin to produce the same amount of pleasure, and it is a downward spiral that we are on. And Moses basically says, uh, the author of Hebrews says that Moses forsook the pleasures of sin, the fleeting pleasures of sin, and he embraced, he embraced the ill treatment with the people of God because he was looking to something that was lasting. He was looking to a greater reward. In fact, that's what he says next. Verse 26 really is interesting because it links the faith of Moses and the ensuing suffering with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says he, Moses is recognizing that this is not a just about what's going on in the here and now, that this is Moses looking ahead in faith. It shows us that Moses' faith was forward-looking. He was looking forward to the Messiah to come. It also makes this passage immediately applicable for the church. The church 2,000 years ago that this letter was written to and the church today. This is not about ancient history faith. This is about Moses looking forward to the Messiah that we embrace, that we love, and that we believe in. And Moses was looking forward to the reward. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Remember, 
in Hebrews chapter 11, what we have is this kind of zooming out, zooming in, zooming out, zooming in. And he starts zoomed way out talking about generalities of faith. And then he zooms in to talk about some examples. And then he zooms back out to talk about more generalities. Well, I want us to remember the generalities he said about faith. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. We see a little bit of that in Moses' story. He was not just seeing what was seen. He was able to look to what is unseen and hope, be certain of what is hoped for. Look at verse 13 to 16. The author of Hebrews says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, all of which Moses is doing here. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Moses is living out this picture of faith. Remember, George Guthrie summed it up like this. Faith is confidence that results in action carried out in a variety of situations by ordinary people in response to the unseen God and his promises with various earthly outcomes, but always the ultimate outcome of, of God's commendation and reward. Moses, in identifying with God's people rather than the people of Egypt, is living by faith. He is holding on to what is unseen. He is trusting God for the promise of reward later on. He is looking forward in faith and he is taking action despite, despite the earthly consequences. Moses is living by faith and he continues to live by faith. Look at verse 27. It says, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Now this is probably the most difficult part of the text. Because we have to try to determine which leaving of Egypt is being referred to here. Is it the leaving of Egypt after the plagues? Is it the exodus proper? And if it is, it's easy to say at that point he didn't fear the wrath of the king. It's easy to say that he didn't fear what the king would do. He is bold and he is in opposition to the king as he leaves Egypt at that point. But if it's that leaving of Egypt, it gets the order mixed up. Like the author of Hebrews has been moving pretty chronologically through the Old Testament up to this point. And if he's making reference to the Exodus proper here, then he's mixing up his order because he's going to go, he's going to go next to the, to the Red Sea. So, so it, would be, it would be a little bit out of order. But if he's referring to the first time Moses left Egypt, do you remember this part of the story? Moses saw an Egyptian slave master beating a Hebrew slave and he killed the man he killed the Egyptian slave master and he was afraid the text says he was afraid of the king of Egypt and so he fled Egypt and he went out into the wilderness into Midian and that's where he meets with the Lord that's where the Lord does incredible things in his life but if this is a reference to that leaving of Egypt then we have to deal with well, what is how do we reconcile the fact that the text in the Old Testament says he feared the king and the author of Hebrews here is saying he did not fear the king. Well, here's the way I would settle this. I think it's best to go with that second option. To say that this is a reference to the time when Moses left Egypt and fled into the wilderness of Midian after he killed the Egyptian slave master. 
I think it's a reference to that one. But I think what we see going on there, and the author of Hebrews is saying, he wasn't primarily motivated by fear of the king when he left that time. He was primarily motivated by faith and his identification with the Hebrew people because that's ultimately what led him to kill the slave master. So it's not fear that is the primary motivator in his life at this point. It's faith that's the primary motivator in his life at this point. Fear is a secondary thing, and he is leaving leaving Egypt by faith. Maybe it's splitting hairs. Maybe it's not. But you can see, regardless of how we land on that question, how this would be pastorally applicable for the people who got this letter 2,000 years ago. They also were called to endure. They also were called to not be afraid of the king. They also were called to have their eyes fixed on the unseen God and live boldly by faith. And we must do the same. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. We still must focus our eyes on the unseen God and his promises and live boldly by faith even when it means we have to be in opposition to the king or the authorities in our lives. So by faith, it says in verse 27, not fearing the wrath of the king, he endured as seeing him who was unseen. Look at verse 28. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Imagine the faith that was involved in that first Passover. They had seen incredible things, right? They had seen plague after plague, frogs and gnats and fire and all this incredible stuff. But now... They get all these very specific instructions. Eat the unleavened bread. Stay in your house. Bitter herbs, a lamb. And take some of the blood and put it on your door frame. And when the angel of death pass over, anybody that has the blood of the lamb on their door frame, their son will live. But if you don't have the blood, your firstborn will die. This is very strange. And Moses is telling them all this on the front end of it. They've never seen anything like this. And Moses is giving them directions from the Lord. And they do it by faith. They they didn't have some kind of thing to look back on and said, Oh yeah, last last time we put the blood on the door, everybody survived. They've never seen anything like this. And yet Moses, just based on the pure word of God, says, This is what we must do. And the people did it. The people did it. R. Kent Hughes says, he had nothing to go on but God's word, but he believed it implicitly. Moses' massive faith saved Israel. Imagine the faith that was involved in that first Passover. Imagine if I told you that today. Something bad is going to happen tonight unless you take a lamb and kill it and spread its blood on your door. What would you think about me? I've lost it. I'm telling you, it took a massive amount of faith for Moses to say that to the people and a massive amount of faith for the people to do it. And that's what it looks like to follow God, to trust him at his word. When he has spoken, we must follow. Look at the last scene, verse 29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Now the attention shifts away from Moses to all of the Israelites as they leave Egypt. Imagine that scene as Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them. The Red Sea is in front of them. Pharaoh's army is behind them. And they are absolutely without hope. And then suddenly the waters of the sea begin to part. 
Walls of water begin to form and the people begin to pass through the Red Sea on dry land, away from the army. And then as the Israelites, the Hebrews, they get through the Red Sea, the army of Egypt begins to pursue them and the walls of water that had parted for the people of God come crashing down on the opposing Egyptian army and kill all of them. Imagine that scene. That's an incredible day, right? And there are some people who try to say, ah, I wouldn't really like that. It wasn't really so miraculous, Chris. Because if you look closely at the language, it's not Red Sea. It's actually Sea of Reeds. They try to argue away the miraculous nature of this story by saying the body of water that they were crossing was really only knee deep at its deepest place. It wasn't, it wasn't really so miraculous because if you look closely at the language, it's not a big deep sea. It's a puddle that they're going across. Well, I got news for you. That doesn't take away the miraculous nature. Even if that is right, the text is clear that the entire army of Egypt drowns in the same water that the Israelites went across. So if you take out the miraculous parting of the water and the crossing of the people, you add the miraculous drowning of an entire army in knee-deep water. There is no way around the miracle here. God did something absolutely incredible on that day in that he provided for his people and he destroyed their enemies. And you know what the difference is between the people of God and the Egyptian army? Faith. By faith, they went through the sea. And the Egyptian army didn't have faith and they drowned. So what the author of Hebrews is trying to teach us here is that faith is action. Faith is confidence that results in action. So I think there are three applications we need to make today. Number one, let us give our children every opportunity to hear and see the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's give our children, like Moses' parents gave to him, every opportunity to hear and see the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not just talking about the children that live in our houses especially those children. But let's get involved in the lives of children that don't live in our houses, that maybe live in our neighborhoods or in another neighborhood. Let's get involved in the lives of all of these children in Harrisburg, in Saline County, so that they can hear and see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, there's a great opportunity for this coming up later this summer. In just a few weeks, on July 17th, we will have Vacation Bible School. Vacation Bible School is a fantastic opportunity to expose children to the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just in words, but also in deeds, as people love on them and serve them and feed them and teach them the word of God. So here's what I want from First Baptist Church. I want everyone to bring a carload of kids to Vacation Bible School. They they don't have to be your kids. Just pick up random kids. And bring them to Vacation Bible School. Talk to their parents first and tell them where you're taking them and make sure you get them home. But bring a car full of kids to Vacation Bible School every day. How many of you have children that live in your home? How many of those children have friends? Maybe very fewer, right? Maybe some of your kids don't have any friends. Bring your kids' friends to Vacation Bible School. How many of you have kids that live in your neighborhood? How many of you know a child? (laughs) Any any child? 
Bring those kids to Vacation Bible School because it is extremely important that we expose our children to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you were saved at Vacation Bible School? Your life was forever changed through the ministry of Vacation Bible School. Several. Several. Lives are changed at Vacation Bible School. So let's give our children every opportunity to hear and see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Vacation Bible School is a great opportunity to do that. Number two. Are you experiencing this negative and positive identification like Moses? In other words, have you come to the point in your life where you have made this declaration, I am not an Egyptian. I am not of this world. I am not like my neighbor. And as you're saying that, have you also said, I am a child of God. I am part of his family. I am one of his children. And maybe more importantly is not just have you made that declaration, but is it clear in your life that that's the case? Is it clear by the way you are living that you are not of this world, but you belong to God? That you are not like your neighbor, but you are part of the kingdom of God? Is it obvious who you are? Or are you, are you like a lot of Christians who are saying, I want them both. I want, I want to be both. Can I not stay the son of Pharaoh's daughter and identify with the people of God? Can, can I not remain a part of this world and enjoy all the pleasures that this world has to offer and be a follower of Christ? Can, can I not have what this world has to give me and have heaven as well? No. No. That's not the way it works. You don't get to have one foot in each of these worlds. That's not the way it works. We must, we must uh, put off the old, set it aside, put it away, and we must put on the new. We must say, I am not an Egyptian. I am a Hebrew. I am not of this world. I belong to God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you have that going on in your life? Is it clear which world you belong to. And then the third application has to do with that Passover business at the end. He says, By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkling of blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. I want you to know that the author of Hebrews argues and argues and argues that there's a better lamb than that lamb. There is better blood than the blood Moses commanded. There is a better lamb and there is better blood. The lamb's name, name is Jesus and his blood covers our sins. And the only hope for rescue from certain death is by the blood of Jesus. It's found in the blood of Jesus. And we are only under the blood of Jesus by faith in him. It's not about, it's not about wiping something on your door. It's about trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, that he came and died on the cross for our sins, that he shed his blood so that we could be forgiven, that he took our sins upon himself and suffered the wrath and the punishment that we deserve, and he died. He died in our place, and they buried him in a tomb. And on the third day, he rose again in victory over death and sin and hell, all the things that would hold us captive, and he offers us life that is everlasting. He offers us peace with God and forgiveness of sins and cleansing that is not just on the outside, but on the inside. He offers us a brand new life as a gift. 
as a gift. Not as a paycheck that we earn, but as a gift that we receive gratefully by faith. By faith, we receive that gift. I want you to know the hope and peace that Jesus can bring to your life. I want you to know about this better lamb and his better blood. The way we respond to the offer of God's grace, the offer of eternal life, is by repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. By turning away from our sinful lifestyles and walking with him in faithfulness and by trusting, depending, leaning, resting on Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation. Let's stand together and pray. God, we are thankful for the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We are thankful that he is a better lamb with better blood than what Moses knew about. We are thankful that Jesus, by his death, burial, and resurrection, provides forgiveness, cleansing, hope, peace, reconciliation, salvation. And we're thankful that this is given to us as a gift of grace to be received by faith. Not by working, striving, doing, but by trusting and believing, depending on Jesus Christ. And Father, we know that that faith is accompanied by repentance, a turning away from sin, walking with you in righteousness and faithfulness. God, I pray for men and women and boys and girls that they would repent and believe today that you would give them repentance and give them faith and that you would change their lives forever today by your grace. And I want to pray for your people as well, that we would be giving our children, the children of this community, every opportunity to hear and see the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would be thinking about the next generation and telling them the good news. And God, I pray that you will help us to live, to live out our identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would say and show that we are not of this world, but that we belong to you. God, teach us every day what that looks like, how that's fleshed out, that we would live for you. God, as we respond to your word in these next few minutes and hours and days ahead, we pray that you'll conform us to the image of Christ. Change us and grow us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.